I did it. I figured out how to make Kenny Rogers Abraham. All right, so we're going to continue on with uh, the story of Abram here. And um, it's only proper that we talk about Abraham. Abram at this time, I'm sorry. Abram getting his first son on Father's Day. And you get to see a little bit more about um, the father's heart that is in Abram. And this is a great example today of the father's heart of Yahweh. And uh, so that's where we're going to head today. So just do a little Abram catch-up so far. Abram was called out of Ur. He left the city life behind, heads up to Haran. And uh, when his father dies, he leaves Haran. And he finally makes it over to Canaan. He takes Lot, his nephew, with him. Remember, Lot was fatherless at this point. Abraham kind of takes him in. And Lot goes with Abram. He gets over to the Canaan. He builds Yahweh an altar, hanging out in the Oaks of Mamre. And he starts his life there. Um, famine forces him to take a journey to Egypt. And uh, he takes a journey to Egypt. He is brought into Pharaoh. He lies to Pharaoh about Sarai being his wife and says, that's my sister. And, Sarah, and Pharaoh is like, well, I would like her for one of my wives. And Abram is being sneaky snake. And he lies and brings curses on Egypt. And he gets expelled with accumulated riches because Pharaoh just wants him out of Egypt. He goes back. Um, to the altar, and he makes right in the presence of Yahweh. Um, if kids want to go to children's church, they can. Okay. Um, Lot and Abram separate nicely. Um, they are looking at the two different scopes of land, and they aren't quite sure Lot wants something good, so Abram gives them the, what, what Lot sees as the good stuff. And then last week we talked about Abram participating in a military strike to get Lot and his company back from the Mesopotamian kings that had invaded. So they went in, they took, they took Lot, they took all his stuff. Um, and then he meets uh, Melchizedek, who was a figure that we talked about last week, and ends with being blessed by Melchizedek, and he's worshiping Yahweh, and that's where we leave him. And so chapter 14 ends right there. So getting into chapter 15. I don't know the timing on this because it just says after these things. I don't know if this is occurring with Melchizedek Melchizedek, or if this is happening after Abram has gone back home. But either way. Um, And so after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So looking at this first paragraph, there's some things I want to focus on. Number one, word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. And it says the word of the Lord came to him. Who is the word of the Lord? Jesus. So this is Jesus showing up. We're going to talk about this more today. And this is going to occur more in Abraham's story. Now, some people will get upset 
if you say that this is Jesus, because Jesus is the name of this being's earthly person, we can just say Jesus. It's okay. I don't think it makes a difference. But that's who it is. That's who the figure is. Now, um, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, I'll be your shield. Abram is needing protection. Abram just went and ticked off four very powerful kings of Mesopotamia. Um, large armies, large amount of resources. I think Abram's a little freaking out at this point. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Um, when it says um, you'll, you'll get your reward will be very great, the actual translation of the reward is kind of wages. So it's this idea that what Abram has been doing the reward's going to come from that. So it's this idea of works, too. So they're emphasizing some works here. And it's interesting because they're going to turn this on its head, too. Um, o Lord God is Adonai Yahweh. And Adonai is another name that they call God, and it means master or ruler. So the wages in the context of the master, there's a little bit of play there on that. Um, and when it says your very own son, um, you get down into it, it means out of your loins, meaning it's going to be his physical genetic son. Um, another thing I want to point out with stars, a lot of people look at the stars, and when they say your, your sons, your children will be like the stars, it has to do with numbers, but it also has to do, it's a quantity and quality thing. Remember a couple weeks back, what do stars represent to the people of the ancient Near East? You guys remember that at all? principalities, powers, spiritual, it's like spiritual beings. So when he's talking to him about his sons, he's talking about the quantity like the stars, but at the same time, he's also talking about the spiritual nature of your children. And we see that come into fruition right now, as we all sit around in here with the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Um, we get to see that coming out. In belief... He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. There is that idea of, of belief bringing in the righteousness. We think about this, we think about this as a New Testament idea, but this is a very, very old, Old Testament idea. Um, Paul references this exact verse multiple times in his writings and his letters to the other churches. And Paul is using this to recommend, hey, it's, it is after all your belief that is counted to you as righteousness. Even though he was just emphasizing the idea that your wages for the works that you've done will be very great. So even back in Genesis 15, we see this, this tension with faith and works. So that's just something that's all the way through the Bible. Um, so that's just kind of all the stuff that's hidden in that one paragraph. So he's there, the Lord Jesus is talking to him. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. This is already weird. And he brought him all these, and then he cut them in half. And laid each half over against the other. 
and he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So this is something I had to look into because this is just weird. And what it is, is it is a common covenant ritual of the Mesopotamian world. So what you do when you're going to go into a covenant with somebody is you bring these animals out, you get out the old long knife or sword, and you start cutting these animals in half, blood and everything, and you lay them along like an aisle idea, and you split them in half. And what happens is when you make the agreement with someone, both of the individuals will walk through the carcasses of the dead animals. It is the idea that it's, it's a blood covenant without spilling human blood. Um, that's, what, that's what they did. So the idea is that if you, you're doing it because the life has been poured out over the offering of this covenant, and if you break this covenant, it's like a curse to death. So that's the old, that's the old idea behind this whole strange, bring me these three-year-old animals, put them in pieces. So, so that's the idea. So we haven't gotten to the walking through part yet. But that's the idea of that. That's, that's why it does make sense. It's not just some random... Yahweh's like, let's just kill some animals, cut them in half exactly. I mean, there's, there's an idea behind this. And as the, so, oh, the other thing I want to mention is the Bible makes it a point that the birds of prey came down on the carcasses. So the birds of prey, a lot of times in the Old Testament, the birds of prey represent evil spiritual forces. They're unclean birds. They eat of blood and all the stuff that you're not supposed to eat. So there's this idea that the birds of prey are these unclean animals. And I think there's a spiritual connotation there that there's the idea that there are people who already know that Abraham is blessed. There are spiritual beings that know and the birds are coming in to disrupt this covenant thing and Abraham is shooing them away, which I thought was cool. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So this is all during the whole offering thing still. And then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with their great possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." Notice the Egypt prophecy cycles back and reminds us of when Abram left Egypt with all the possessions that were granted to him by Pharaoh. This whole cycle is going through again. So Abram, his story, he's leaving Egypt with a bunch of possessions. And in the future, we're already looking to the Exodus in this passage. In the future, the Hebrews are going to come out with a lot of great possessions. And then also later on, even Jesus as a child, goes back to Egypt. And when Jesus comes out of Egypt, comes back out to live his life. Um, so there's just all this repetition stuff going on. And it's starting right in Genesis. Jesus promises Abram a long life. So there's that security. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to protect you. You will be buried in a good old age. Um, and they're going to come back for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We'll talk more about the Amorites when we get into Joshua's invasion. And who the Amorites are? The Amorites are part of the Rephaim. So if you've been following the Rephaim stuff we've been talking about, they're, they're bad, bad people. 
And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, in the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. So here we get another list of all the ites. And you get, you start seeing some of those things now that have been repeated a couple times now earlier going through this. Um, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a hit list. This is what's going to go down. You're going to get this land back from them. Um, what's fun is we've already talked about this row of carcasses. And what goes through the row of carcasses? Yeah, the smoke and the fire. What's going to lead the people out of Egypt? The smoke and the fire. Who is the smoke and the fire when they lead them out of Egypt? Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So who who leads them? We'll just talk about that here. Who leads the Hebrews out of Egypt? It's that fire and smoke. It's Jesus. Jude 5 confirms this when it says, I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. It's the idea that here is Jesus. We said that the word of God is coming to Abraham. Jesus is making this covenant with Abram. It's a one-sided covenant. Abram never walks through the carcasses. Abraham can't fulfill it. God knows that. So Abraham can't fulfill it. God, because he is a great father and knows that it is impossible for Abram and his family to fulfill this thing, He passes through the line. He makes the covenant. And he makes the covenant in the fire and smoke form. And then when he fulfills it in Exodus, he's in that the cloud of fire and the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke. He fulfills it in the same form. It's kind of fun. It's very interesting. I I didn't realize that before. Um, So here we have this whole idea that his faith is what secures the covenant, his belief. And again, Jesus, Yahweh is going to fulfill this. Only Jesus and Yahweh can fulfill it because Abram can't. It's the whole idea of everything we talk about when we read the New Testament. Everything's laid out here. So we have this incident where the covenant is reassured. You're going to have these kids. Your kids are going to come into trouble. I'm going to save your kids. We've got that. Abraham is considered righteous right there because of his faith. So now we get to go and we get to see Abram and Sarai fail again. Um, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So now Abram has a second wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And she saw that she had conceived. She looked with contempt on her mistress. So the idea that Hagar, once she realized that Hagar was pregnant, she knew that she was going to bear Abram's heir. She starts looking down on Sarai. 
because I've done what you couldn't. And uh, we're going to see this whole wife, servant wife thing get repeated in Jacob. The same scenario. Um, One thing I want to note, a lot of people are like, well, if Abraham's so full of faith, why did he do that? I don't think that Abram, this was in any case, Abram's unbelief. I don't think it was unbelief. I think this is impatience. I think that's what it is. I think for Sarai, it could be unbelief. Um, She has a hard time believing she's going to have a kid in a couple chapters. When God shows up with some friends, she's going to have the same attitude right to God's face. I think in Sarai's part, it's unbelief. In Abram's part, I think it's impatience. I think he knows God promised me it's going to be my kid. It's going to be for my loins. Does it matter? The woman. And so Abram steps out in impatience. The relationship between Hagar and Sarai is now demolished. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is bad. Okay, so what Abram does is, I've impregnated this woman. She is my wife. And Sarai is upset. I'm just going to give her back. Just tosses her back to Sarai. She says that she's back in your possession, basically. She's your servant in your power. Do with her as you please. So way to go, Abram. Way to go. And uh, at this point, I'm still just not a giant fan of Sarai. She hasn't grown on me yet. She's going to have to grow on me because so far, just not impressed. Um, And like I said, Abram essentially tosses her back like property. Continuing. So Sarai, and she fled from her. So she's fleeing. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring of the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where, are you, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the Lord, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. And so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahairoi, it lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. Angel of the Lord. This cannot be an ordinary angel. The reason we say this cannot be an ordinary angel is he accepts the worship from the human, Angels further in the Old Testament, the angels, when they show up, don't accept worship. They'll tell people to get up, stand on your feet. And he has the ability to bless and go into covenant with someone. So who is this angel of the Lord? This is where we're going to watch some Bible Project 
spiritual being videos to continue our series. We've been talking about spiritual beings in the Bible, and we've looked at how God is in the heavenly realms, but not by himself. There's a whole staff team that the Bible calls the divine council. But in the Bible, there are still more beings in the spiritual realm, like the cherubim and also the angels. So let's talk about them. Okay, first, the cherubim. These are chubby little babies with wings, right? No, you gotta get that image out of your head. Cherubim, or in Hebrew, cherubim, they're way more fascinating. They're described as hybrid creatures, a collage of different animals, and every time they do appear, they look a little bit different. That's intense. Yeah, they're supposed to be intimidating. They stand guard at the boundary between heaven and earth. If you see them, you know you're entering the presence of the one who is above all and truly other. The first time cherubim show up in the story of the Bible, they're standing outside of the Garden of Eden. Right, the garden is God's temple residence, and so he places these spiritual bodyguards at the entrance so that the rebel humans can't get back in and ruin everything. But the biblical story is about how God wants us back in his presence. Yes, exactly. So this is why he chose the people of Israel and gave them the gift of a symbolic miniature Eden called the Tabernacle, and then later the Jerusalem Temple. In both of these spaces, cherubim were painted and engraved all over, reminding the priests that they are working in God's presence. Now, if a priest went into the Holy of Holies, he would see there a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant, and on it were two cherubim. What's going on here? Well, the biblical authors describe the ark as the footstool of God's throne, which the cherubim are carrying. Like we read in Psalm 99, God sits enthroned above the cherubim. But there was no actual throne above the box. Right. The Israelites weren't supposed to represent God with any physical image. But when the prophets had visions about this space, they saw Yahweh sitting on his throne. Okay. So cherubim guard the sacred space, carry God's throne. But why do they look like animal mashups? Well, they're symbolic representations of all the creatures of the earth because they all belong to God. This is why in Isaiah's vision, all of the creatures are singing. Everything that fills the earth is God's glory. Like a choir. Yeah. Through the cherubim, all creation offers praise to its maker. Great. That's the cherubim. Now let's talk about angels. I'm way more familiar with them, human-like figures with feathery wings. No, wait, stop. Angels in the Bible don't have wings. What? No wings? No angel wings. In fact, angels are often mistaken for people because they look like us. Just a bit more impressive. But the cherubim have wings. Yeah, and the angels are different because they have a different purpose. Okay, which is? Well, humans can't just march into God's realm, so God will reach out to us, and he often does so through these spiritual ambassadors. So angels are like spiritual messengers. Yeah, in fact, that's what the word angel means, a messenger. Right, this happens a lot in the Bible, like the angel who tells Mary she's pregnant with Jesus. Yeah, and then the other main role of angels is to perform missions on God's behalf. Sometimes they rescue people from danger, like when Peter is released from prison. And there's some really cool angels, like Michael and Gabriel. Yeah, the name Gabriel means God is my power. And Michael means who is like God. But also notice, these names point to God, not to the angels. Like humans, the angels are images of God's presence and power. But still, how cool would it be to meet an angel? Yeah, and maybe you will. And maybe you already have. But no one in the Bible is ever encouraged to go looking for angels. And when angels do show up, people are usually puzzled or freaked out. So, angels are really awesome, but they play a supporting role in the Bible. 
Yes, because God's ultimate purpose is to bring humans back into his presence in a reunited heaven and earth. And in the meantime, he uses angels to guide and to serve his people. So, in the Bible, reality is made up of two overlapping realms, the heavens and the earth. Our space and God's space. And while life here on earth may seem ordinary, sometimes we can encounter heaven right here in our own realm. Yes, this happens a number of times in the Bible. And when it does, we often encounter a fascinating character, the angel of Yahweh. Or in most translations of the Bible, the angel of the Lord. Now we've talked about angels. They're spiritual messengers who perform missions for God. But the angel of the Lord is no mere angel. How so? Well, every time he appears, he's described in a way that's purposefully puzzling. And it leaves you wondering, was that an angel sent by Yahweh? Or was that Yahweh himself? What do you mean? Here's one of many examples. In the book of Genesis, there's a story about Hagar, Abraham and Sarah's runaway Egyptian slave. And we read this. The angel of Yahweh called to Hagar. But then this angel speaks as if he is Yahweh, saying... I will give you many descendants. And then Hagar responds and says, You are God who sees me. So the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. But that can't be. In the Bible, you can't see Yahweh or you'll die. Yeah. So this story and others like it are inviting us into a paradox. That Yahweh is above all, inaccessible to us. But sometimes he reveals himself to us in ways that we can see and understand. And that's where this character shows up. He's Yahweh made visible to us. Yes, distinct from Yahweh and also Yahweh. This is very similar to other biblical stories about prophets who get a glimpse into God's space, like Isaiah, Ezekiel, or Daniel. And what they see is a glorious human figure on a throne who's called Yahweh. So the one on the throne and the angel of Yahweh, this is the same person. Exactly. Watch all this come together in the famous story of Moses and the burning bush, where we read, The angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And when Yahweh saw that Moses stopped to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. So this person in the bush is called the angel of Yahweh, then Yahweh, and then God. And then later in the story, Moses learns that the figure in the burning bush is the one leading Israel out of Egypt in a pillar of fire and cloud. And that's the one who later takes up residence in the tabernacle. The tabernacle. This is the throne room of God himself. You got it. The angel of the Lord is the royal glory of Yahweh appearing as a human. Now, keep all this in mind as we start talking about Jesus. In the opening of the Gospel of John, we're told that from all eternity, Jesus was with God and was God. Distinct from God and also God. That's the same paradox we saw with the angel of Yahweh. Right. And then John says that God's word became human and set up a tabernacle among us. The temple presence of the invisible God. Exactly. Now check this out. There's a story about when Jesus took three of his followers up to a mountain and his true identity was revealed. He was transformed into a glorious human figure. Okay, I see what's going on here. So the angel of the Lord was God appearing like a human and Jesus is God now become a human. Yes. And notice this. In the New Testament, no one ever uses the phrase angel of the Lord to describe Jesus. Why not? Well, they wanted to avoid the idea that Jesus was merely an angel. For them, Jesus was Yahweh God become human in order to fulfill his ultimate mission to fully reunite heaven and earth once and for all.
All right. Does that help with the angel of the Lord stuff? So that's important because as we go through the next chapters, uh, this figure is going to keep showing up. And so as he keeps showing up, just keep that in mind who he is. And it's kind of fun. And now when you go through your Old Testament, some of you that are now aware of this, you can see there's lots of different places where he shows up. Um, finish out today. I just want to talk about Ishmael for a little bit. Actually, I'm going to go back because it's concerning Ishmael. Uh, I'm just going to do the movies. Oh, there we go. I'll just... Anyway, there's a point where... Um, when he shows up to Abraham has done the sacrifices and he falls into the deep sleep and he, and he talks about the land that he's going to give to Abraham's children. And one of the biggest uh, detractors when people criticize this is that land tract is rather large and it's never been the full land tract of nation of Israel proper. But just keep in mind that Ishmael is the son of Abraham. And so there's lots of land in that description where it gives the, the description from and there's debatable what the, the river in Egypt, if it means the Nile or whether it means this one wadi that's outside of it. Um, that's, a, that's a debate. But it says it goes all the way over into the Euphrates, and over into the Euphrates is where Ishmael and his family settle. And so when God is giving this, this your children are going to inherit this land, one way to look at it is his children through Ishmael do inherit that land that the Hebrews never inherit. Does that make sense? And so that's, that's part, of the, part of the Ishmael thing that, that we need to keep into context. Um, just quickly on Ishmael, he'll get brought up again, but not for a while. There are 12 sons of Ishmael, just like there were 12 sons of Jacob. Um, much later in the history of Israel, there are Ish- Ishmaelites who integrate into I- Israel. And this is just a quick paragraph I took that someone had wrote down. I don't want to go into too much with it because we'll end here. Um, so you're going to have Ishmaelites that are going to marry back into the Hebrew people too. And then there are going to be some that remain separate um, from Jacob's family. Also much later, there are the adversarial interactions that were prophesied by Jesus. Um, Gideon delivers Israel from the oppressing Ishmaelites. In Psalm 83.6, written in the era of the kings of Judah, speaks of Ishmaelites who seek to harm Israel. And so... There are a number of people groups that trace who they are back to Abraham just on a genealogy type type thing, not even in a faith type thing. Um, so just keep that in mind when, when this land promise and your children are going to be numerous promises given, it's not necessarily the idea that the nation of Israel is going to extend all the way over into Iraq. That's not necessarily what it's saying. And that's one of the criticisms people give for that verse. Um, so yeah, so Abram this week meets with God, physically meets with God. Um, he gets another covenant concerning land and a deliverance out of Egypt that will befall him. He messes up. He gets impatient. He creates a whole drama with uh, Sarai's slave. And then he does get his son. He gets his first son. And what we're going to find out, too, is not to downplay Ishmael, but Abram really loves Ishmael. And we're going to, well, we're going to read that next week or in a couple of weeks when I'm back. Um, he really he loves Ishmael, and he's fine with God using Ishmael to be the blessing because that's Abram's heart. He 
wants good for his son and he's fine with that. That's not necessarily Yahweh's plan. And so Yahweh is going to give him one by Sarai. And we'll get into that. But Ishmael is blessed and Ishmael goes on to have a large family too. Because God is faithful. And the fact that the concerns of Yahweh for his kids are enough that he follows a slave girl out into the desert to make sure that the slave girl is safe and the son is delivered and they they live a good life. When that could have been it right there. Abram and Sarai messed up. See you later. But that's not the heart of God. That's not the heart of the father. And so I just want to end there with Ishmael being born and Abram is now a father on Father's Day. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you again for your faithfulness. Thank you again that your plan is true and faithful and that your plan cannot be disrupted by our impatience or our unbelief. Lord, we, we don't want to do things the hard way. And so help our hearts so that we don't get full of unbelief or, or impatience. And Lord, help us to not doubt your timing, but to stay faithful to what you are saying. And Lord, we thank you for the word of the Lord. And we thank you that you speak to us, that you've given us the Bible to read. And Lord, that you are a God that communicates with his kids. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that you are a God that comes down and works with us. You're a God that's not afraid to get his hands dirty and to do things. And we thank you for that. Knowing full well that we're not worthy of that. So happy Father's Day, God. We love you. Jesus, we're thankful for all that you've done for us, for that restoration into the family. We love you, and in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.